Well, this is episode six of the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks. I am really pleased to welcome Trey Williams to the show. Um, Trey, in his own admission, is a self-confessed strange bird who certainly hasn't followed that classic kind of STEM education and data path. He is currently the data architect working at Bitly, who are well known for having one of the most cutting edge modern data stacks out there. He is a self-confessed space nerd and a passionate techie. Super, super happy to have you on the show, Trey. And if you uh, wouldn't mind giving us a bit of an introduction to yourself, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Alex. Um, as you said, my name is Trey Williams. I'm a data architect and modeler for Bitly, uh, which is a really great organization uh, where my role is really focused on ta taking data that we pull into our environment and creating useful and reliable uh, data products, which are leveraged by the organization to answer really any number of mission critical questions and to guide business processes. Uh, you know, previous to this, I was a director of analytics architecture and data engineering at a Dallas-based agency working on primarily blue chip clients, uh, building out analytics and data capabilities in their environment, oftentimes with their tool sets, uh, which while at the time I'll admit could be frustrating, really offered me exposure to tooling that I hadn't yet interacted with. Um, you know, that said, and Alex kind of mentioned this, I haven't necessarily followed the typical uh, you know, STEM path into data. I started uh, my career in sales, actually, and then kind of migrated into marketing ops, uh, which gave way to a media role where I ran paid media across other uh, digital marketing platforms. And that it was kind of my introduction into, uh, you know, the data and analytics space. Awesome. Thanks for that. And it's, uh, it's interesting because obviously the whole, the whole kind of objective and I suppose mission of this podcast is to try and kind of educate, support and uh, provides uh, kind of a platform for people that aren't necessarily kind of following that classic STEM education, you know, data analysis, senior data analyst, data scientist uh, kind of career path. You know, thinking back to when you started off in sales, you kind of what was the kind of method and the madness for kind of following that analytics route? Yeah, so. I think, um, you know, to be perfectly frank, the, the rise of analytics has, has certainly, you know, become more and more prevalent over the past 10 years. And I got to be a part of that. Um, and so uh, I'll tell you and anybody who might be listening, I am the world's worst salesperson. And so I didn't last very long <laughs> on that side of the table. Um, and so I moved into, uh, you know, marketing ops and, and paid media, and it was there that I really found um, my love for the capabilities of data. Um, I am an overly analytical person by nature, um, and so as a paid media team lead, it was, you know, it, it was the utmost importance for me to be able to make, um, you know, sound and data-driven recommendations, not only for the continued progress of our endeavors, but for my own sanity. Um, and so I would say it was a natural progression, really just trying to focus on solving business problems and, and trying to provide value back to the organization in that way. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's not your kind of classic path, but I think you probably uh, probably reemphasize my, my view that there isn't necessarily a one size fits all kind of path on this, which, which is great. And, I, you know, I know you're very kind of in the trenches in terms of modern data stack and certainly data modeling and data architecture which has 
from my side, we've seen a massive surge in uh, requirements, uh, you know, and desire to have a dedicated modeler that works alongside the analytics engineering team and interfaces with the business. What, what, what are your kind of thoughts behind the rise in that demand and importance for these people, especially given the the kind of rise in popularity and and, and demand for the modern data environments. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think data modeling has become uh, a more prevalent conversation here in the past couple of years, and it will continue to do so uh, because it, it it really seeks to help organizations understand and organize their data. Right. Um, we live in uh, a technologically driven world where there is a lot of activity. Um, you know, around ingesting data from other platforms into our own environment. And uh, the modeling process really is to, you know, create that blueprint of the data structure and those relationships, which uh, just makes it easier for all of our engineers and analysts to work with that data to act to extract those uh, meaningful insights. Um, And I do think it's really kind of at the crux of the growth of that big data and that need for real-time data analysis uh, that has created that strong demand for skilled modelers who can design and implement implement uh, efficient and scalable data systems. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think back in the, if we think five, six, seven years ago, you've got the the, the more classic kind of data modeler who'd be working in that kind of huge enterprise environments, working in very structured and siloed ways. And actually, if you look at Bitly's a great example, um, you know, data modeling for them means so much more. And I'm guessing if you tie that in with DBT, uh, you know, and the impact this has had on the analytics engineering kind of community firstly, but equally the, the businesses that use it. Why do, what do you think is behind the rise in uh, kind of DBT as the modeling tool of choice? So DBT is definitely um, an interesting tool. Uh, I've, so at least in my perspective, you know, the rise in, in the prevalence or, or the acceptance rather of DBT as kind of that top tier choice is the ability to simplify and automate so many of these really tedious and time-consuming tasks that are associated with the traditional data modeling processes, kind of as you put it. Um, and so the ability to uh, uh, you know, abstract really complex SQL code um, and allow users to create models using like a higher level syntax uh, really just takes something that is very technically complex and, and allows uh, a wider range of adoption. And so when you compare that with something, um, you know, that has definitely been an industry standard for years, like Apache Airflow, um, I think um, it not necessarily levels the playing field, but it opens those gates a little wider uh, because the technological requirements are um, potentially a little bit lower for something like DBT than what you would find in, um, you know, Airflow. Yeah, it's certainly feedback I've heard. Uh, and whilst there is certainly a uh, an expectation for, for many companies for people to come in with an understanding of DBT, you're right. It's it's made it a lot more open for people that maybe has come from very strong uh, SQL background, for example. Uh, you know, it's, it's certainly opened that up. And I suppose on that point, um, a lot of people listening here, um, you know, are in that kind of analytics engineering domain. Um, and but may not have had the opportunity to 
pick up, learn and, and use DBT in a commercial capacity. So from your experience, and obviously coming into an organisation where DBT is probably about what, a year, 18 months um, in its kind of lifespan there, what, what steps can kind of architects and modellers take to kind of learn and upskill themselves because i've heard of obviously there's many platforms out there training platforms but from your experience and maybe how you've upskilled yourself what, what steps can they take to to learn that tool yeah for sure so uh, you know um and it's you know conceptually uh dbt is very very simple i would say but but it can get very complex and so you know uh upskilling and and learning tools like dbt um, should really start with the basics, right? And so really understanding data structures and, um, you know, what businesses are, are seeking to do with them. Um, there's a, a ton of documentation, and, and this is something that I've been able to leverage throughout my career, is there's a ton of experts. There's a ton of documentation and content that you can go out and consume on your own to get a better understanding of how these tools operate in um, a real world use case. And then as an extension of that, I would say, you know, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty. One of the things that has been invaluable in my career is um, an understanding that I'm going to get it wrong. The best thing I can do mm -hmm. is, is um, expedite that process um of uh you know learning things through trial and error so that i could then turn and use those learnings in um in you know production capacities yeah it's interesting you say that as well and i think do you think therefore in your experience there's some kind of leeway and maybe an expectation from companies that are relatively new in this kind of modern data environment that people coming in either need the time investment uh, to train and upskill them or they're they're okay with that kind of be brave make mistakes type mentality do you think there's kind of an expectation um, that they either invest more in the training at the front end or they allow them as you say to kind of roll their sleeves up and just try yeah so uh i think that's a great question and and i would say ultimately it depends on the organization i would say i've worked at both mm -hmm. Uh, organizations that are like, hey, nobody knows how to do this, so let's take a crack at it. And I'm generally the person that's raising my hand in those situations versus organizations that have maybe a little bit more buttoned-down approach. Um, and I would say it's really important to understand what kind of organization you're at. But I would also say that given the availability of you know cloud architecture and tools and even things like free trials, um, if this is something that you're really interested in, you should very... I mean, it would be my opinion that you should consider building out some, um, you know, some personal projects. One of the things that I started out with when I started um, kind of tinkering with third-party ETL tools is I redid all my finances in the cloud. Um, and that gave me, um, you know, real-world experience in terms of, um, you know, what kind of pain points can you run up against, uh, you know, from concept to implementation that you're then able to leverage uh, at an organization that maybe has a little bit more prim and proper development process and isn't necessarily just out there taking big swings. Yeah, I love that. I think it's, uh, it's kind of empowering for anyone listening to say, you know, you know, it, the onus is on you 99% of the time. It's actually, you know, try it why didn't use this in a non-commercial capacity where maybe the risk and uh you know is is, is less 
less there, I guess. But no, I, I, I like that. And I get, you know, obviously you've come from such a different background, as you said, sales and in your own admission, you weren't very good at it, uh, but you're obviously a far better analyst. In terms of, you know, there obviously is, hopefully the, the world is changing, but there is a hang up with people coming from that more classic quintessential uh, STEM education. Uh, and you've navigated your way through different organizations, different capacities. But for those people that maybe, maybe like yourself, have come from something very different like sales or marketing, or they may be in a non-technical role, what advice can you offer those people up who are looking to move into the more technical engineering side of analytics as opposed to maybe more the more business intelligence and reporting side sure yeah so um you know kind of as i had alluded to earlier i've, I've definitely been fortunate in my career to tra- to kind of traverse this business landscape from sales and market marketing into into digital um and i never really envisioned myself you know early on in my career being here um, but what I was always very interested in was, um, you know, solving, solving business problems, um, has, has really kind of been my guiding light, I would say, uh, my entire career. And, and again, kind of found my way to leveraging data, um, to provide those recommendations and to yield those insights. Um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, for me, it was a little bit different when, when it came to things like, you know, the technical requirements, right? So learning to code. Um, I actually learned to code because I have a hard time waiting for things that I'm interested in. So <laughs> I learned to write Fair SQL enough. about 10 years ago because I was unable to get my queries uh, prioritized by my DBA. Um, and at the time I'm running media and, and split tests um, and, you know, the consensus in the space is like just use the tools whether it's you know Google Ads or Google Analytics or so on, but I'd already been exposed to the viability of the insights that are gleaned from uh, data, data that is modeled across customer um, and marketing, and so um, that kind of gave rise to um, you know my my learning SQL. Um, Python was really no different. Uh, I found myself needing data to exist in in locations that it didn't and my tools weren't going to help me um you know my data engineering time at the time was tied up with a litany of requests and changes Uh, a lot of times they were kind of migrating environments for clients and so i found that i could prototype something in a matter of days where it might take me a couple of weeks to get it prioritized um kind of through the through the traditional paths and so, um, you know, a lot of these things that I have been able to do or had the opportunity to do have been at the crux or at the behest of trying to um, solve business problems. And so kind of with that, I would also say that there's so much focus on the revenue side, right, to go out and make money. But organizations really yeah. have, have two moves. We can make a dollar, we can save a dollar. And on day one, they're kind of viewed um, somewhat equitably. Because the assumption is with every dollar we save, we're going to go out and make a dollar. And so the opportunity, um, I think, is is really pretty vast in today's world, given how much uh, activity businesses are engaging in and how uh, little visibility they really have as to the real impact of their endeavors um, kind of across their marketing ecosystem. I would also say, 
you know, um, outside of focusing on those business problems that you have to be able to collaborate, right? There are so many different disciplines within an organization, oftentimes using different nomenclature and vernacular to communicate similar concepts. And so having that understanding of this is what they say, but this is what they mean, um, I would say is definitely uh, an important piece to the puzzle for anybody who's looking to make a transition from their current role into more of a data centric role, or even just trying to um, incorporate more data driven decisions into their current role. Um, and then actually it's like for people who really want to be in that data space, I think the prioritization of systems is a really important consideration, right? We as humans are prone to error, uh, especially with um, replicable processes. Um, and then you add on top of that, that it's really not the best use of our time and our effort and our emotional and mental power at that time. And so anything that can be solved with a system should be. Um, and then remember, uh, you know, good business intelligence begets itself. So um, what I guess I mean by that is I've never really seen a successful analytics or data project that answered stakeholder questions, provided value to the organization that didn't lend itself to the next iteration or the next version or the next project. And so it definitely behooves us to consider that when we build today that the product um, or the project or what have you that we might be focusing on today might in fact be foundational to something that we might want to do in three, six, 12 months from now. And so really focusing on those business problems, um, understanding that collaboration is really uh, the path and um, you know, prioritizing systems and understanding that what we do today is really just uh, foundational to what we're going to be doing tomorrow. Yeah, I like that. It's an interesting point. Isn't it? So many people are focused on the here and now, and actually, uh, uh, by looking ahead, it's actually more. It makes more sense. And I guess you've touched on it a few times there about the kind of the business problem, understanding, uh, I suppose, the problem you are trying to solve, obviously the use case. But, and what I've seen more and more sort of from a headhunter standpoint is, uh, and you're a great example of this, no longer is it okay for engineers, analysts, modelers to be just strong technically. Um, they need to be very strong on the stakeholder and business side. And I we've obviously recruited in the space for a number of years and that has accelerated more and more over the last couple of years. So why do you think that, A, that is in terms of that expectation and kind of shift has happened? And, and, and going back to your point earlier, why do you think that is so important now for the good analysts and engineers to have exemplary communication skills? Yeah, so um, I would say that, you know, the gap, that traditionally exists between our IT and our business departments um, is ultimately it's it's how I made it into this space is by being able to bridge that. Um, and mm. so I think that any organization that has done, you know, data projects has had one or more or many that uh, upon delivery don't necessarily tick all of the boxes. Um, and generally when that happens, there's been a key 
context piece that was either not communicated well enough or was assumed <clears throat> um, at some level that didn't necessarily ring true all the way through um, you know the the technical implementation and that's a really painful uh, situation for most organizations to come up with because not only you know are we paying for things like compute and storage and tools and people um, but we also have an emotional value tied to this end product and so the ability to synthesize and really create a North Star that is not only uh, viable and feasible, but also meets the requirements of the organization is the path out of those conversations where, um, you know, the, the organization wants to do something and uh, maybe the IT department doesn't necessarily just like run in with, you know, drums and trumpets and partying um, and, and, <laughs> and that can, you know, cast aspersions on the on the viability of the of of that project and, and we want to avoid scenarios like that but when that happens i think that people are ultimately dealing with fear that's driven by past interactions where hey we put a lot of work and effort into this and we ultimately did not receive what we were hoping to and so the ability to to not just own the technical component and the implementation side, but be able to really communicate with those stakeholders and discuss what will and won't be available in version one and ongoing iterations is really um, is is really crucial to not only uh, the ongoing success of the project, but being able to get it off the ground day one. Hmm. It's interesting, and I think with also with uh, automation, new tools, um, you know, and, and maybe a, a future a less reliance on the the hard kind of technical skills. I think my, my honest assessment is I don't know if you believe kind of agree with it, but I think the expectation, in your own words, bridging of someone who bridges the gap between that business and the technical side, and can, and kind of break down the technical speak into palatable kind of uh, you know, internal dialogue is is going to become even more uh, common and even more in demand I think certainly I've, I've seen that ourselves uh, and actually the emphasis is uh, going back to your point earlier about where how accessible training is development is and all these resources are out there I think people are placing just as much importance on uh, and focus on communication skills and stakeholder skills influencing skills as opposed to but they're very strong technically i don't know if you've probably seen that yourself oh yeah i think it's really easy um you know especially given how busy the space has been and um how many you know new tools are coming up kind of all the time it's it's easy for those of us in these technical roles to become somewhat myopic um and and not just the value that it creates but um how we work you know across teams and um, I've definitely, you know, in talking with, you know, recent MBA grads and people kind of fresh out of school, um, one of the things that I find it valuable or helpful to communicate is the idea that um, all of this tactical busyness of tooling and processes, uh, th these are all hows, right? These are all how do we do the things. What businesses and stakeholders and organizations are really wanting are the what's. Um, what are yeah. we going to do? 
Um, the how is really, you know, that's an R, that's an R chord. Um, and, and, you know, I know I've seen this kind of time and time again in my career, kind of the comparison of, you know, um, a machine learning model versus a rule-based model, right? And that conversation kind of crops up every so often, but that is still us discussing hows, right? And kind of discussing, mm -hmm. well, what is, is this one better? Is that one better? Um, and at the end of the day, you know, the, the leaders of the organization that you work at or the organization that you want to work at, you know, they're really sitting around dreaming up what's not how's and, yep. and, and the ability to kind of overcome that, that technical component and really speak to the capabilities of the in-state product, I think is, um, I think is a really important consideration. Yeah. No, I, I, I'd wholeheartedly agree, actually, from someone who's tasked with finding, um, you know, said skill set, you know, I'd say the majority of uh, the reasons people are rejected is is down to that kind of uh, in lack of uh, ability to kind of drive change, you know, uh, you know, talk about the kind of the what, you know, what are we trying to do? And then subsequently, how are we going to deliver it? And actually breaking that down is, is super important, I guess. Um, you, you touched on it earlier about people breaking into this space uh, and, and that ties in with the the demand. You know, we are still seeing, despite the relative kind of market kind of turbulence we've seen in the last kind of few months, there is still huge demand, especially for people in that modern data uh, stack, um, someone that has worked closely with the business. And I guess as a, as a hiring manager, I know you previously Manage and you're relative. You're in a senior role now. In terms of attracting, retaining, uh, and onboarding these type of uh, kind of profiles, uh, what what steps can hiring managers take to kind of stand the best chance of um, hiring people? I guess. Yeah. Um, so this is an interesting one to me, just because I think the answers are probably pretty simple, although they're multifaceted. And to your point, you know, this space has been for lack of a better word, booming uh, for the past few yep. years. And yes, there's been some significant turbulence over the past few months. Um, but but I think that just um, kind of under uh, underscores um, some of, you know, the uh, the need to not just attack, uh, attract, but to retain, you know, really good talent. And so, um, you know, I get that maybe not everybody wants to talk about this first, but I do think that, you know, compensation and benefits are going to be the top tier consideration for almost anybody in today's yeah. world. Um, you know, engineers are in super high demand. And so, um, you know, competitive salary, uh, benefits, bonuses, all of those things are going to be very attractive considerations for anybody who might be looking, uh, you know, to, to join an, uh, an organization. But, you know, outside of that, I do think there are some um, uh, some other opportunities, uh, probably more culturally driven, like, uh, you know, really trying to foster a positive uh, and inclusive workspace culture. Right. Um, so I, it's it, it's definitely been my experience that, you know, engineers do want to work in something that's positive and collaborative. Um, not everybody knows everything, uh, and and most engineers I've worked with in my career are subject matter experts in one thing or another, but certainly not everything. 
And so what you kind of get with um, with a well-built uh, engineering team is kind of this uh, Venn diagram or, or Euler chart for my nerds out there um, of capabilities in that we have really good coverage, but maybe not everybody knows everything. But it also offers the opportunity for everybody to upskill and learn from those who are subject matter experts in their uh, you know, particular disciplines. Um, I think that lends kind of to the next thing, which is that opportunity for growth and development. Um, I think that, you know, the, the turbulence of the data space lends well to kind of the constant iteration of, uh, you know, data practices and, and how we seek out to do the projects that we do. And it's further kind of compounded by uh, the ongoing changes of the business. And so um, opportunities to kind of grow and develop alongside that. Um, and then really, I think the last one is the ability to, um, you know, offer flexible work and uh, arrangements. Yeah. So, you know, work from home um, is, is not something that I really got to do much before COVID hit, but it's been an invaluable um, benefit just being able to be, you know, around my family more to be able to be here when my kids leave for school and when they come home. And I know that's not an opportunity that everybody has. And I have tremendous gratitude that, that I'm fortunate enough to have that. But there's opportunities outside that as well. So um, even just allowing people to take care of their daily life during the day. Right. So not necessarily not necessarily being pinned to a strict, you know, 830 to 530 or what have you, I think um, can be a really valuable um, and attractive incentive for somebody who is looking to to uh, bring on good talent. Yeah, no, I like that. We certainly I know we talked before we kick this off is about the change in just working practices you know leading up to COVID there was there was obviously uh, more of a remote first mindset creeping in and what, what COVID effectively did was obviously accelerate that trajectory I think where we so what we're seeing now however we are beginning to see organizations making noises only some of those organizations uh, with a presence trying to get some form of face time and I, I know you know you've previously as you said you've not necessarily all, always been remote and i guess you know when you're talking about the the business problems the the challenge the the technical environments how much do you think uh emphasis is on kind of a culture from a remote standpoint because that's the one thing we always struggle to articulate people say what's the culture like and actually a remote business it is quite hard to create that kind of culture what have you seen kind of work and equally what have you seen that kind of doesn't work yeah so i do think that the that you know remote work does add complexity to imparting culture across an organization there's absolutely no doubt about it in my mind um and it's something that in the in the organizations that i've worked remotely for um i would say you know, the prioritization is is on understanding, of course, that um, we don't really have work selves and home selves, or at least I don't. Maybe mm. other people do. Um, I'm just Trey at work or Trey at home. And so, um, you know, being able to have open dialogue and honest dialogue, even if it is through a Zoom call or Google Hangouts, I think is a really important consideration, as well as having 
you know, the opportunity to uh, not just learn from each other through, uh, you know, work projects and, and kind of co-working, but, uh, but to learn about each other. And so I've seen um, the organization I work at right now, we do a question of the week across a couple of teams. And so for the first couple of minutes during a meeting, um, somebody is, you know, somebody brings a question, generally something fun. Um, and it allows, you know, for, for us to kind of get, um, a, a better understanding of who our coworkers are, um, at a deeper level. Right. And so I think that, um, you know, being open and being honest about some of the complexities and how it might be weird is definitely, um, I would definitely say is a, you know, is an opportunity for organizations to kind of break that wall and, and have their culture be something uh, more than just a performative task. Um, but I'll also yep. say that it can be taken too far. Right. Um, and so I would say that, you know, from a culture standpoint, it's definitely more complex, but it's really about understanding that everybody is a human and they have other things that they're thinking about. Um, you know, even yeah. even today, as as we're recording this, you know, I'm thinking about events of last night in Michigan. Um, and so we yeah. don't really get to put. Uh, the rest of our lives in a mental or emotional box when we're at work. And so allowing people to be who they are, um, I think is, is really like um, the foundation of a strong culture and everything's going to grow from that. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I think, uh, you know, people should allow that culture to kind of foster and develop and as opposed to controlling it on your point earlier with the current company is trying to, allow people to interact and get to know their kind of the real person rather you know i know you've got kind of the same trait at work as you are kind of at home but maybe some people have work mode and home mode so no, I, I i like that and i guess you know that you've obviously been in this architecture space for a while you understand um you know your strengths and what's made you a good architect but in kind of your honest opinion and for people who are aspiring to kind of follow that kind of more business-led data architecture route. What makes a good data architect in your eyes? Yeah, so um, I think that I think that somebody who is going to do well as a data architect um, does have, um, you know, I think it. I think the foundation. It's really about strategic thinking. I think it's really about understanding um, and anticipating potential challenges and opportunities. Right, being able to develop a vision for the organization's data architecture that aligns with the with the organization's goals, not just the goals today, but what the goals are going to look like in the future. Um, technical expertise, while we've not you know spent a ton of time talking about it today, is going to be a requirement. Right, so being knowledgeable in in in, in some of these available technologies. Um, obviously relational databases, NoSQL, big data platforms, these things are ultimately going to be, um, you know, the tools in your toolkit. And so having, um, you know, uh, a certain level of understanding and expertise, not with all of it, but definitely with some, um, business acumen or, or, um, uh, sorry, business acumen is probably, uh, going to be the next one. So 
having a strong understanding of, you know, what, what opportunities can we uh, kind of effectively uh, start to leverage and how do we communicate mm -hmm. that value uh, and those benefits back to technical and non-technical stakeholders the same, which, which yeah. is um, really going to be at the heart of our communication and collaboration skills. Right. So um, it's really just about being able to have multiple different disciplines in a room and tell a story that everybody gets. Um, and I've definitely been guilty at times of, uh, you know, having um, kind of a, a, a broad attendee list and kind of cluing everybody in. All right. This is going to be for the technical folks. We're going to talk to the non-technical folks here in a minute. But really great uh, data architects are actually able to do those both at the same time. And so, um, you know, really understanding uh, not not just how to communicate your piece, but communication is is largely contingent contingent on the receiver. And so, really understanding um, you know how to do that, and then adaptability, right? Um, the products and the projects that that we're building today, um, and I mentioned this earlier, are going to be foundational, but they're also going to be iterated. And so, um, you know, being able to stay abreast of not just the technologies that are coming uh, into the space, but how that patterns back into the organization's goals and the visions that you hold as a data architect for, um, for you guys' data projects. Yeah, no, I think it's fantastic. And actually what, what's been really refreshing uh, speaking to you, Trey, is obviously you know you 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 didn't follow that classic route but actually what you've hopefully opened up a lot of listeners kind of ears too is 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 by following that kind of path you know staying true to yourself upskilling you know making mistakes being brave um staying close to the business whilst also mastering the tech um you know you don't need to have that kind of physics statistics mathematical background as long as your mindset is this is that way inclined um, and I'm sure that the people who are listening and people who are maybe questioning their ability to make that transition down a more technical path, I think you've certainly allayed their kind of concerns and doubts. But no, I, uh, I can't thank you enough, obviously, for your uh, for your time today. I do appreciate it. It's uh, smack bang in the middle of your uh, your work day, but uh, I really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks again. I'm sure uh, people will be really, uh, really excited to hear this. Yeah. I can't, um, I can't thank you enough for the time and the opportunity to come and to join you today and to speak to some of these things. And I think I might just add as a closing statement that I would understand, you know, having some trepidation about moving from maybe a non-analytical or data role. in. when you go into the grocery store, you're trying to pick a cart or a buggy that doesn't have like that loud wheel, right? And so um, you're going to take a couple data points and a really quick look at the carts to try to make your best decision to get yourself a good cart. Me, I'm generally looking at the wheels. Is the cart clean? Uh, is there anything in the cart? And so that is a really everyday example of me taking um, historical data and applying it to a model of me trying to pick a good cart at the grocery store. And so... Um, I think if you are analytical by nature, you can use that and lean into that. And like you said, continue to iterate and upskill um, into the space. Yeah, I love that. Thanks so much, Trey. I really do really appreciate your time. And thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate your time, Alex.